You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Amen. Let's give him the praise one more time this morning. He deserves it. All right, you guys can be seated. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer as Josh comes up and gets ready. Um, God, Lord, thank you so much for this time. God, I just pray that you be with us in this place. God, wherever we may be in this new building or, God, if you have us to continue to serve us right here in this, in this beautiful theater. God, we're just so thankful for the privilege it is to, to worship you and honor you. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters next door at the river. Lord, I just pray that you just be with them and just help us as a body, not two bodies, but one, just serve you and love you and just just be a light for this community. And God, I just pray you be with Josh this morning as he brings the word. And Lord, I just pray it softens our hearts. And Lord, as all, we just thank you for Jesus, especially this time. Lord, a Savior was born, and we're just so thankful for that. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. You got some background music going on there. Got some background music this morning. How are you guys? Doing wonderful. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. Merry Christmas week, right? Merry Christmas week. Christmas week. I'm so thankful to be back with you guys. Um, after having to worship together from home the past two weeks because of COVID affecting our church body, as several of you guys have had COVID and, and our family and Stephen's family. And um, so glad that everybody's doing okay and recovered and, and so thankful to be here. Unfortunately, the rest of my family is uh, not with us this morning um, because one of our kids is still under quarantine, so, um, you know, everybody's fine, everybody's doing good, but, but out of abundance of caution, we, um, my wife's home with the kids this morning, <clears throat> but we're all doing good, all feeling better, and uh, I'm, I'm just thankful to be here worshiping with you, good to see your face here, good to see everybody's face, <laughs> it's good to see you all this morning, um, I, I usually make an effort each year, at least the week of Christmas, to, to kind of pause whatever study we're going through and, and focus specifically on the birth of Christ, since that's specifically what we're celebrating this week, right? Um, and so this year is no different. I, I do want to um, take a pause from our study in John, although it would have been totally appropriate uh, for Christmas week to talk about John 6, where Jesus calls himself the bread sent down from heaven, which I think is a clear indication uh, reference to his, his virgin birth, uh, but I do want to go a different route this morning, and um, and so we'll continue through John 6 next time, and as we get into the new year here. Um, so if you will, turn with me to Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, and you might be thinking as you turn, this is not a Christmas text either, what are you doing Josh, if we're not Doing John, then why in the world would we go to Second Peter? And uh, I would say that you're right. This is certainly not a text that we we typically uh, think of as a Christmas text. But I want to use it just as kind of a, a launching point for us this morning. So um, when you get there, if you'll go ahead and stand with me, Second uh, Peter chapter one, and uh, we're going to read this passage together. All right, and we're going to start in verse 13. So Peter's writing here, and he says, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father, God the Father honor and glory 
when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray as we open up. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, and I thank you for your people. I thank you for this church family and what they mean to me, Lord, and, and, and our family. And um, They're just such a blessing to me, Father. Thank you for each individual here. Um, and God, we, we ask that this time would be a time where you would get the glory, that you would remove all distractions that might be hindering us from, from worship, worshiping this morning, Father, and um, that we can just come together and give glory to you, Lord, and celebrate um, what we're celebrating this week, the birth of Jesus Christ, Lord, which is uh, the reason for our salvation, Lord, um, his work, Lord. And, and we just praise you for what Jesus has done. We ask that you would just speak through me this morning. Um, just use me, Lord, to speak to your people. Move me out of the way. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Okay, um, so we have here in this passage in, in 2 Peter, we have in verses 13 through 15, Peter writing to the church, um, the church as a whole, much of which is being um, enduring great persecution uh, for their proclamation of, of the gospel of Jesus. So a lot of the people he's writing to, they're, under, they're enduring a lot of persecution. And he's writing to them saying, I'm about to put off this earthly tent. In other words, God has apparently revealed to Peter that he was about to die. Um, Now, we know from from, uh, church history that that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith in in Jesus Christ. But apparently God had revealed this to him before his death at the time of this writing. Um, He had revealed that, that his time was near. And so he says to these Christians that that he's about to die, but he wants them to have a reminder of some things before he passes. And the first thing that he brings up in this letter is the surety of the Word of God. That's what he's talking about here, of Scripture, as he says here. Um, He says in verse 16 that that the writers of of Scripture, himself included, uh, they didn't just sit around devising fables when they revealed these truths to us. They they weren't just making up stories, but they were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus. And they wrote what they saw, right? That they were eyewitnesses uh, to Jesus. And he goes on to talk about this experience that he had with Jesus while Jesus was on the earth which is recorded for us in Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Christ. And you guys, uh, you guys probably know this story. He was there with Jesus, and then he saw Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, and he saw Jesus be transfigured into his glorious heavenly body. You guys hopefully remember that. And he heard, plain as day, the voice of God come from heaven and say what he quotes here, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He had experienced that firsthand. It could not be any more real to him, right? It was a personal experience for Peter. He was right there with Jesus. Incredible experience. The most real experience he had ever had. But he goes on in verse 19. And I'm going to use the the KJV here. He says, We have a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. He says that, that the scriptures that we have and the prophecies within the scriptures are even more sure. They're even more sure than that experience that he had with Jesus. This amazing experience that he had with Jesus. He says, we have even a more sure thing and it's the scriptures. It's the Old Testament. Of course, uh, he, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, Right? That's the scriptures they had in their hands, right? They, they had the Old Testament scriptures. But I think he's also referring to 
what he's writing and what other apostles are writing because he refers to them as eyewitnesses in this passages. And they were eyewitnesses when they wrote these things down. But he says, we have this sure word of Scripture and it's the most sure thing on the planet. Do you all know that this morning? It's the most sure thing that we have on the planet. This Bible that we, that we sometimes uh, sit by the bedside and don't touch it for a week except between church, right? This Bible that we have probably 20, 20 copies in our house each. And how often are we actually diving into it? This Bible that we so frequently can neglect. It's the most sure word on the planet. It's the most sure thing on the planet. And he says you do well to cling to it, to heed it like a light in a dark place. And he goes on to say that that prophecy never came by the will of man. Okay, man wasn't just waiting around for prophecy, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It was God's word written down by man. You know, one of the things that as a pastor I love most to study and to teach is is, um, the amazing prophecies in the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of of around 1,500 years by 40 different authors and it predicts in advance much of the course of of, of history in amazing detail. And there's one clear singular message that it all points with perfect harmony to, and that is the coming of and the work of the Savior of the world. Amen? Y'all listening this morning? Y'all listening to me this morning? The, The coming of the Savior of the world, it all points to that. The Old Testament paints this gloomy picture of the absolute hopelessness of man right isn't the whole isn't the old testament pretty hopeless it's pretty hopeless it's just sin after sin after sin weakness after weakness after weakness of man absolute sinfulness of man and the fact that that because of that helplessness because of that sin we have a a severed relationship to god it's broken and in parts in the Old Testament, you think it might be unfixable. Like it's hopeless. It's a hopeless situation. But throughout the Old Testament, we see this, this glimmer of hope, don't we? We see this glimmer of hope throughout, consistent throughout the books of the Old Testament, of this coming one, right? this coming solution, this coming uh, something that would somehow fix our brokenness. Fix this, this problem that we have of being separated from God. And while, while the coming of this one, this Jesus, whose birth we, we celebrate this week at Christmas, is predicted in specific detail in the Old Testament, without the fulfillment of the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels for us, the pieces are very difficult to put together. There's this glimmer all throughout the Old Testament, but it, it's kind of weird because some of these things tend to or seem to contradict each other. Or as you're reading the prophecies of the Old Testament, um, you know you'll read one thing about the Messiah, and then you you read another thing in another book that seems totally different. It's like how do these two, these two things come together? And without the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. I'm not sure we we could put those things together. It's almost impossible to put it all together. Um, God organized the prophecies about the Messiah in such a way that it seems to give mixed signals, even maybe uh, contradictory at times, we might think. When you put it all together, you can see why Peter also records in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is in verses 10 and 12, he says that the prophets inquired and searched carefully what they themselves wrote by the Spirit of God to try to figure out how and through whom and when God was going to reveal the salvation that He had predicted. The prophets even 
wrote more than they knew. The prophets would write what they wrote and they would think, I'm not sure what God, I know God is telling me to say this, but I'm not sure what this is going to look like. Not exactly sure when this is going to come. When we, get to John the ba- when we get to John the Baptist in the New Testament, who's the last prophet right before Jesus, we see that, that even he was confused about what to expect from Jesus. In Matthew 11, John is, is nearing his execution, right? He's in prison. And he's wondering if, if Jesus is really the Messiah. Can you imagine that? John is the one called... Uh, born for the purpose of proclaiming the Messiah is here, right? Miraculous birth through Elizabeth and Zacharias. And he was sent to this earth to proclaim that Jesus is here. And yet he's sitting in prison and he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is really the Messiah. And he sends word to Jesus. Ask Jesus, are you really the one to come? Or should we be looking for another? Hard to believe that John would doubt and not understand. But he was confused by the prophecies. He expected, like most of the Jews, that the Messiah would be this awesome military leader who would bring Israel back. Because there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament that say that, right? There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about this this, this king, this leader, this powerful leader who is going to be the king of Israel. Even the disciples, even after being told by Jesus. You know, Luke records that the, the disciples were told by Jesus that the Messiah must die. And they were even told by Jesus that on the third day He would rise again. They were told this, Jesus' disciples were. Jesus told them on multiple occasions. But even they, after they watched the way Jesus died, after they watched the way He was pierced, after they watched the way He was hung on a cross, they were scared after Jesus died, remember? They were hopeless after Jesus died. It was all predicted clearly in the Old Testament, but it was difficult to put it all together. And I believe it's written in such detail that it's hard to figure out because God wanted to be sure that there was absolutely no excuse for rejecting Jesus. The intricacies of His coming, though maybe difficult to unravel, were made very clear well in advance, hundreds of years in advance. And it could only be fulfilled in Jesus. It could only be fulfilled in Jesus. When you put all of the puzzle pieces together, you see a very clear picture. No one in history could possibly fulfill this but Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Some of the prophetic mysteries of the Christmas stories. And I I didn't get this myself. I didn't a lot of this material... Um, as many men over, over decades have, have presented this material. So this is nothing new. Um, but some of these prophetic mysteries of the Christmas story and how Jesus solves each and every mystery like no one in history could. And by the end of this, my, my prayer is that we would be in awe of this Savior. As we go into Christmas week here, that we would just be in awe of this Savior we have, and also be amazed at this sure word of prophecy that we have in front of us. That we would cling to this word with everything that we have. That we would heed this word like a light shining in a dark place. My prayer is that, that our, our, our faith in the Savior and our faith in His word would be strengthened this morning when we leave. And so let's go ahead and get started with these, And we're just going to go over prophecy after prophecy. I don't have a slide really to organize this because I thought that was a little difficult to do this morning. But the first prophecy that I want to look at is the prophecy about the Messiah's home. Okay, the Messiah's home. And if you want a place to kind of hang out in your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapters 1 and 2. 
Uh, so you can keep your Bible open there. We're going to refer back to those um, several times. But let's look at this prophecy about the Messiah's home. Now, uh, this one may seem fairly obvious because we talk about each year at Christmas how it was predicted, right, hundreds of years before. Um, Anybody know what book it was predicted in that the Messiah would be born in? Born in Bethlehem, right? But what book was predicted? The book of Micah, right? So, so Micah 5.2, Micah 5.2, you don't have to turn there, you're welcome to if you want to. Um, but the, Micah 5.2 says clearly the Messiah was going to come um, from Bethlehem. It says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Now we're going to come back and read the rest of that verse in a few minutes. For a different reason. But here we see predicted hundreds of years in advance that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That's the Messiah's home. Pretty easy, right? It was, it's Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. This is what the Jewish chief priest told Herod, right? When Herod's wondering, um, where is this king supposed to be born? Because he wanted to kill him, right? Matthew chapter 2. This is what the Jews believed, and this is what the chief priest told him. They, they quoted this verse. They said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But then we find in Hosea that there's more to the story. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. There's more to the story. It says there that out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, now in the original context of Hosea, we see clearly... And we're not going to turn there, but, but we see very clearly, if you want to turn there, you can see clearly that he's talking about the nation of Israel. That's the immediate context of Hosea. He's talking about the nation of Israel and how he called them out of exile in Egypt. Right? That's what he's talking about in Hosea. He's looking back, saying, out of, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, why does he call him a son? Well, oftentimes in Scripture, Israel is called God's son. But I think also there's a reason for that, right? He's pointing forward. He's looking forward to this one who would be the Son of God, this Messiah. And we see that verified in Matthew. Because in Matthew, uh, Matthew quotes this, right? He quotes it in, in uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. He quotes that passage there, Out of Egypt I have called my son. You see, in in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15, we see that Joseph is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. They're in Bethlehem. They've had Jesus. Um, They're only in Bethlehem, by the way, because of a census, right? So notice the way God, at the beginning of time, orchestrates all of these events. And He knows who's going to do what, at what time, and when, and exactly how. And He knew there would be a census that would send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, right? Not a big deal for Him. And so that's pretty easy um, for Him. But it's because of a census, a free will decision to do a census of Rome, of the empire. And so they, they have... Jesus in Bethlehem, but then we see in verses 13 through 15 that Joseph is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt and stay there until he's told otherwise because Herod is trying to find Jesus and kill him. And remember, Herod makes this proclamation that he's going to kill. I imagine this as a mother, by the way. He makes this proclamation that he's going to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem that are two years and younger. Can you imagine being the mother or the father of of a two-year-old child at that point? Just absolute tragedy, absolute sin. That is the epitome of sin, isn't it? I mean, how awful, awful, awful. And so Joseph was warned in a dream to go to Egypt to flee. And there it says in verse 15, that this happened to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But that's still not the whole story. 
If we go on in Matthew chapter 2 to verses 19 through 23, we see that Herod dies and Joseph and Mary, well, they're ready to go back to Israel. And it makes sense for them to go back to Bethlehem or, or uh, maybe Jerusalem, right? To be, this is the Son of God, so to have Him kind of near the temple, maybe uh, live in one of those places. But Joseph finds out that Archelaus, Herod's son, is ruling over Judea, where Bethlehem is, where Jerusalem is. And so rather than go to Jerusalem or Bethlehem, Joseph decides, after being warned in a dream, to go to Galilee, to a city called Nazareth. That's right, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And it said in verse 23 that this happened to fulfill the prophet's word that he shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. And that prophecy is thought to come. There's not a direct prophecy that uses that term that we're aware of. But it's thought to come from Isaiah 11.1. And it was possibly a play on words with the Hebrew word for the word branch there. And so that's a lot to get into, but if you're interested in studying that more, certainly look into that. Um, But it's really a lot to dive into this morning. But it's thought that that's the prophecy that's talking about, the Hebrew word for branch there, which is also a very common Old Testament messianic title. So you can see the complexities and the detail of the prophecies predicting the Messiah's home. It's not so cut and dry, and it's not so cut and dry so that we would have no doubt when it happened who it is. Only Jesus. How could someone, how could someone be from Bethlehem but also be called out of Egypt and also be a Nazarene? Who else could fulfill this mystery but Jesus Christ? And then there's a mystery of the Messiah coming from the line of Judah. Turn with me to, to Matthew 1 if you're not already there. And, and we have in Matthew 1 this genealogy of Jesus, right? Luke gives a genealogy in Luke 3. That's Mary's genealogy. Um, and, then, and then Matthew gives us the genealogy through Joseph, okay? And so in Matthew 1, we see there in verse 3, verse 3, that Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So, okay, so what? Judah is in the line of Jesus, right? And we find, though, that it was predicted in the Old Testament as well. It's it's prophesied that, that Jesus would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. All of that is prophesied in the Old Testament. But in Genesis 49, verse 10, we read this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is another messianic, messianic title. Uh, even the Jewish leaders in the first century, would have, they would have said, yes, Shiloh is a messianic title. This is talking about the Messiah, and he's coming through the tribe of Judah. He's coming through the tri- tribe of Judah. But there's a little problem with that, that that develops in the book of Genesis. And we find that problem in Genesis 38. And it's kind of a sickening story. In Genesis 38, we see the story of Tamar and of Judah. Um, and it's pretty twisted. Judah had three sons. The oldest one married Tamar. Because he was evil, the Bible says, God judged him and killed him. Killed him. Judah's oldest son. So the custom in that day would be for the younger son to marry um, that oldest son's wife, to give him an heir, to give in honor of, of his brother. In honor of his brother. Rather right? Today we'd be like, that's uh, pretty much a backstab right there. right? But, but it, it was the custom there to, to carry on the, the, the older son's name. Uh, you would marry the wife if you were the brother. And you would, um, you would carry, on, carry on the line. And so Judah gives his second son to Tamar to be um, married to her. But he also committed evil in the sight of the Lord. And he committed a particularly evil act that you can read about in, in Genesis 38. And it says God judged him and he died. God killed him. Well, Judah has one more son. 
Okay, and so Judah, it says in Genesis 38, that, that Judah blamed the loss of his two sons, not on their evil, not on their own evil acts, but he blames them on, guess who? Tamar. He blames their death on Tamar. So Judah refused. He didn't refuse. He put her off. He said, well, wait till my youngest son gets older, and then you can marry him and have a child. He put her off, never intending to fulfill that promise. And so he refused to let his youngest son marry Tamar to give her a child. So Tamar decides to do something very wicked herself. Um, in order to have a child through this family, to keep this uh, family name going, to honor her first husband, Tamar dressed as a prostitute, Genesis says, and tricked Judah, her father-in-law, her own father-in-law, into having relations with her. Crazy, right? It's just almost unthinkable for us. And she ended up becoming pregnant through this incestuous relationship with Judah and had twins, Perez and Zerah. So a sad story of the great cost of sin, right? And the, the wickedness of the human heart, for sure. But because of the sin, and because of the child that was born, an illegitimate child, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, proclaims a curse on that family. It says there that an illegitimate child may not enter the assembly of the Lord until the tenth generation. And so Judah's family is cursed. Yet the Messiah is supposed to come through Judah. The Messiah is supposed to come through Judah, yet Judah's family has been cursed. This is a problem for the Messiah. What has God done to himself here, right? This is a problem because Judah was supposed to, or through Judah's line, would be this ruler over all the people, the king of Israel. But Judah's family is cursed till the 10th generation, right? There's reason for every word in Scripture. And if we go back to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we see in verse 3 that Judah begat Perez, and then it goes on. Uh, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begat Hezron, and it goes on from there until you get to David. And we know that David was king of Judah, king, king of Israel, so something must have happened. Well, if you count the generations between Perez and David, David is, guess what number? The tenth, right. He's the tenth generation. So at the tenth generation, the curse is broken with David. He can take the throne of Israel, and Jesus, the Messiah, can now come through David's line. What we thought was a problem for God was not a problem for God. What sin tried to absolutely destroy, God decided to go ahead and redeem, right? Now, I use that disturbing story to show the detail of God's prophecy, but also to show you the great grace of our God. I mean, what, what disgusting, gross sin in that family. On, on really many accounts, several members of that family. And as we keep looking um, through this genealogy here in Matthew 1, we see all sorts of other sin represented, including three other women mentioned, not including Mary. She's also mentioned. She's the fifth. But out of the four women mentioned before Mary, two were prostitutes, Tamar and Rahab. One committed adultery with David, that's Bathsheba, and the other, Ruth, well, she was a Gentile idol worshiper. And yet these are the people that God continued His story through. These are the people that God decided to bring the Messiah through to save the whole world. I hope we can see from this the wonderful grace of our God. Amen? What grace our God has shown. And also, it does not matter what sin you've committed this morning. There is room at the cross for you. There is room at the cross for you. There is grace even for you. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed this morning. God chose to bring salvation 
through a line, a line of sin on both sides of the family. And He will save you this morning if you'll only ask. Not only that, but for us as Christians, you know, Satan will throw up our past, won't he? He will throw up our past in our face all the time. You remember that? You remember when you did that? God can't love you. How could God use you? Do you remember what you used to do? How could God redeem that? How could God bring you a healthy marriage after what you've done? How could God use you uh, for His kingdom after what you've done? And Satan ever done that game with you guys? Anybody? Nobody? Just me? Okay, great. Me and Lucas, good. Uh, no, I know he has, guys. I know he has with you all. With everyone. He brings up our past, doesn't he? Well, I want you to see this morning that God can use that sinful past to accomplish His purposes still, and He will. He will. Just as we see here, we just surrender our lives to Him and let Him work. He will forgive, and He will use you once again in ways that you cannot imagine. God is the Redeemer, okay? He redeems terrible situations. He redeems terrible sin. He can make good out of what we have royally screwed up. And we can have supreme confidence in that this morning. Don't let Satan push you around with your past. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. And submit to Him and His will and see what He does with that. The next couple of prophetic mysteries really emphasize the necessity of the virgin birth. Now, the virgin birth was necessary for many reasons, um, but, but these next two mysteries really emphasize that as well. And the first is the mystery of the Messiah being prophesied as both man and God. Right? That's pretty clear in the Old Testament. This Messiah would be both man and, and yet be deity. We see in Genesis 22 that the Messiah is prophesied as, as being from the seed of Abraham. Okay, all nations would be blessed by Abraham's seed, his physical descendant. We also see that the Messiah would be the root of Jesse, it says in Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse, and the son of David. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David. Now, how could he be both the root of Jesse, as if Jesse comes from him, right? The root of Jesse... Yet Jesse is David's father, and the Messiah is also the son of David. He's the root of Jesse, but he's also the son of David. That doesn't make sense. How did the prophets make sense of this? How can he be both before Jesse and after David? How can he be before Abraham, yet come from Abraham's line? Remember, Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. Right? He says that in the Gospels. Well, back in the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that we turned to earlier, we see at the end of that prophecy that this ruler who comes from Bethlehem, it says his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, it says. So somehow this, this one has always existed. His, his goings forth are, are from everlasting, from forever. Yet he's going to come through the line of David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. One of the most popular Christmas verses is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And that passage has this picture of the Messiah being both Man and God, this picture that we're talking about here. It says, for unto us a child is born. That's his humanity, right? A child is born. But then it goes on. It says, unto us a son is given. That's his deity. That is, this pre-existent son of God is given by God. And if we go on down, his deity is made even more clear. But Later in that verse there, it says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's somehow a human child 
but also God. Now, can you imagine how confusing this must have been for the prophets? Can you, can you kind of see how they might have missed it? How can, it be, how can it be the Son of God and yet human? And there's so many more passages that show this dichotomy. He's the Son of God in Psalm 2. He's the Son of Man in Daniel 7. He's Emmanuel, God with us in Isaiah. But He'll sit on David's throne. How do you make sense of all this? How does it come together? And then there's another mystery of Jesus' right to the throne of David, his right to be a king. And here we find another problem, just like Judah caused. We find another problem with his right to the throne. Uh, Back in Matthew 1, back in the genealogy, there in in verse 6 you see that David uh, was the king. right? David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And then as you go through these names, you recognize that all the names that follow are also kings of Judah. Until you get to Jeconiah in in verse 11. So if you look at these names, Solomon, he's a king, Rehoboam, uh, Abijah, uh, Asa, Jehoshaphat, all all these guys were kings of Israel, right? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, all these guys, kings of Israel, kings of Judah. Until you get all the way down to Jeconiah and his brothers about, uh, about the time that they were carried away to Babylon, it says. <clears throat> you see, the right to rule on the throne went through the tribe of Judah and it went through David's line. Okay, that's made clear in the Old Testament. But there's a problem when you get to Jeconiah. Jeconiah was an evil evil king. Now, some of these other ones were evil as well, but this one was, I guess, particularly evil here. So much so that God pronounced a curse on his family. This guy was just a vassal king for for Babylon, really, right at the time of the exile, very evil, did not follow the Lord, and he was so evil that God pronounces a curse on he and his descendants in Jeremiah 22.30. You can turn there if you'd like. Jeremiah 22.30 He says in that verse, this is what it says, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Ouch. That's a big deal for Jeconiah, but that's not only a big deal for Jeconiah, that's a big deal for Israel. God has seemingly backed Himself into a corner. The Messiah was supposed to come through this line, and the Messiah was supposed to rule from the throne of David and be the King of Israel. Now God has essentially ended this line of ruling kings. There hasn't been a king in Israel since. No kings after Jeconiah because of God's curse. This is a devastating moment for Israel. We may not fully grasp this, but this is devastating for Israel and the future of their Messiah. I'm sure many thought, has God totally given up on us? Does this mean the Messiah is not going to come? Are we done being God's people? There is no king of Israel now? God has seemingly handcuffed Himself. He's backed himself into a corner. But of course, we we know better than that, right? We know that that God knew better than that and that before the foundation of the world, He knew every detail. And this was not a big thing for Him. And He began to hint of it all the way back in the garden, right? Genesis 3, 15. And you guys know this is the first, it's the first prophecy of the, the coming Messiah. He pronounced to Satan, all the way back in the garden, that it would be the seed of woman who would ultimately destroy Satan. And I'm sure at that time it wasn't known why God said it that way. I mean, we don't talk about the seed of woman. Women don't have seed. It's not talked about. Genealogies are not talked about in in terms of, of the women in the line. They're just not. That's not the way 
It works. But he was hinting already in the garden that this was going to be different. This plan for which would later be revealed for his virgin birth, of course. Then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we see it much more clearly. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God is going to give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's a lot to say about that verse and the meaning of the word translated uh, virgin. We can go into so much more detail. We don't have time to explore all of that this morning. But by the first century, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is very clear that the word meant virgin. A virgin shall conceive, and that would be the sign from the Lord. And we see Matthew echo that prophecy in Matthew 1, 23. He, he quotes that prophecy there from Isaiah 7. And we see them through this one-of-a-kind, never-been-seen-in-history birth from a virgin, the resolution to the two mysteries that we just talked about. Matthew makes it clear in his genealogy that Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. Not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. That's verse 16 in chapter 1 of Matthew there. Mary was his mother, but Joseph was not his father. However, it was through Joseph, his adopted father, that Jesus would inherit the right to rule on the throne of David. Joseph was in the line of kings. And yet, Jesus did not have Joseph's blood. But as an adopted son, Jesus would get all of those rights. And so he would inherit the right to rule on the throne of David No other person in history could ever make that claim because God has pronounced an eternal curse on the line of Jeconiah that we just saw. But Jesus didn't come from the seed of man. He came from the seed of woman. A virgin birth was necessary for Him to inherit the throne, the throne of David. And we still look forward to the day when He will physically rule from David's throne But this is a strong apologetic argument for the Jew. Because guess what? For the Jewish person, there is no chance of ever having a Messiah. There is no chance of ever having a king of Israel. God messed that up with his curse of Jeconiah and Jeconiah's line. Where is their Messiah going to get his right to rule? It could only be through a virgin birth. It could only be through Jesus. But also the virgin birth was the only way to fulfill the prophecies of this one being both God and man that we just looked at. He is God with us, and yet He is the physical descendant of David. He comes through David on Joseph's line and Mary's line. He came from the seed of woman but was placed by God in her womb, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, yet fully human. So Jesus can can fully represent mankind and understand every single temptation that we face, yet He has the power to defeat death. He has the power to carry the sins of the world and and to take His own blood to the throne of God as a mediator for man, in God's presence. No other man could be in God's presence. He has to be God. And he could take his own human blood as a sacrifice for us. The perfect sacrifice. He had to be both. It had to be a virgin birth. Christmas is essential, right? This virgin birth deal is essential to our salvation. Finally, I want to look at one more mystery, and that's, that's the mystery of the Messiah's purpose. Because the Jews were, 
certainly confused about that. This is what really became the biggest stumbling block for the Jews. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the Messiah being this great king who would rule from the throne of David, right? We've already said that many times. Isaiah 9.6, which we looked at earlier, well, it goes on to say that the government would be on his shoulders. Have we seen that? We've not seen that yet. We didn't see the government be on Jesus' shoulders. That's not been fulfilled. But Isaiah 9 says it will be. The government would be on his shoulders. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel said this king would reign forever. He would be a king who would reign forever. Daniel 7 paints this picture of a powerful ruler called the Son of Man there to whom God gives all authority and all power to reign forever and who crushes all other kingdoms. That sounds like a dominant ruler, right? And then Jesus comes and He's hated and He's rejected and He's despised. He's not ruling, but He's washing feet. He's not crushing kings, but He's being crushed by the Romans. Rather than Rome being destroyed, this so-called Messiah is being spat upon and mocked and ultimately crucified on a tree. And then He dies. See, the Jews, in their desperation to have their earthly kingdom restored and seeing it confirmed by prophecy, because prophecy says that. Prophecy speaks of this king of Israel who would come, who's a powerful king, and they didn't see it when Jesus came. And they totally missed the other part of the prophecy. They totally missed Psalm 22, which pictures in, in excruciating detail the crucifixion of Christ. Well in advance, right? Hundreds of years in advance. They missed Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant who would be crushed for our sins. They missed that. They missed that the Messiah would, would, would be not only a, a, crushing stone, a crushing stone like in Daniel, but He would also be a rejected stone in the prophecies. How could it be both? They overlooked the purpose of Jesus' first coming. They couldn't see two comings. And the truth is that, like many of these other prophecies, it can only work if God has a much bigger plan that we aren't going to just understand right off the bat. It takes faith. It took faith for the Jews, and most, most of the Jews weren't willing to have that faith, they were going based on sight, what they saw in the prophecies. We're going to come back, baby. This Messiah, he's going, to, he's going to bring us back. He's going to be king. We're going to rule again. And they totally overlooked a whole host of other prophecies because they were looking for something, right? They missed Jesus' second coming where he will reign, where he will physically reign on David's throne, and it will be forever. He's reigning right now from heaven. But he will physically reign on David's throne in the millennium, and then forever. And he will fulfill every single remaining prophecy about the coming kingdom. Like every specific detail that Jesus fulfilled perfectly with his first coming, that no one could see coming, he will fulfill every detail of His second coming. We have this sure word of prophecy, Peter says. And so Jesus came. He was rejected by most of the Jews. Because why? Because they were looking only for earthly benefit. Right, to those who were, who were looking only for earthly benefits, what can I get out of it here on this earth right now? Well, they were blinded to the rest of the prophecies. They were blinded to His true purpose. They missed it. They missed their salvation. But to those 
who humbled themselves in surrender and in faith. Those are the ones He entrusted with the hope that He was bringing and will complete fully when He comes back in His second coming. The hope of salvation, of restoration of our relationship with God the Father, the sure hope of having our sins taken away, forgiven through Jesus and living for eternity with Him in paradise. This morning I've tried to lay out for you only only a few of the over 300 prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. I think it's been shown pretty clearly that these prophecies could only be fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. There's not even a, a possible option now for a Jewish Messiah. That line's been taken away. It had to be Jesus. Jesus is the only one who completes all of these confusing prophecies from different areas and brings them all together in His life and fulfills them perfectly. There is none other. And there is no other name by which we can be saved this morning. The detail of prophecy to me makes it almost impossible to reject Christ intellectually. I don't know how anyone looks at the prophecies, knowing we have the Old Testament in print well before Jesus ever walked on this planet. The Old Testament was in print, written hundreds of years before these prophecies. To me, it's impossible to reject Jesus intellectually. The evidence is just breathtaking and it's overwhelming. Yet, even if we're convinced intellectually, even if I've, I've convinced you this morning intellectually, the Bible says that's not enough. The Bible says that many of the Jewish leaders were intellectually convinced too. They believed the miracles. They believed, what, they believed Jesus was who He says He is. Yet it says they cherished the praise of men more than the approval of God. And they refused to surrender to Jesus so that they may, may have life. And this morning I would just say that, that if the Bible has convinced you, as it should have, convinced you intellectually, then let your brain inform your heart this morning. And understand that this King Jesus is coming back, just as the Bible is, is very clear about. And when He comes, it will be to judge the world, to condemn the world. And it will be to get... to to retrieve those that that are truly following Him. The Bible is very clear about that. His purpose the first time is is stated in in John 3.17. It says there, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That is the purpose of Jesus' first coming. He came to lay down His life for our sin so that we could be saved. But Revelation and many other scriptures make it very clear that in His next coming, He will be here to judge. It will be condemnation time and time to gather the ones to Himself that have trusted in Him. He's gone to prepare a place for us now. Praise the Lord. And He'll come back and get us someday. But He'll also come back to judge this world. And I pray that this morning... If you've not responded, you will respond while the invitation is still on the table. The invitation to come to Christ. Christ, don't delay. Come to this wonderful Savior who fulfills every prophecy in so much detail. God's Word is amazing, is it not? The detail of these prophecies, it it is unbelievable. And that, that was just a taste of them this morning. What a wonderful God we have, what a wonderful Savior we have this morning. I would invite you to come to Him and see that He is so good. Let this be the most special Christmas yet for you because you you truly worshipped the King of whom it's all about.
And for those of us this morning, uh, probably all of us in this room who already know Him, I pray that this walk through the Scriptures has encouraged you. I pray that it's, it's reignited your excitement to study God's Word, this, this sure Word that you have in front of you this morning. It's a sure Word of prophecy. And I pray that we would, like Peter says, heed this Word like a light in a dark place. Boy, this world is dark. It's a dark place. It is dark out there, guys. And we need to hear from God through His Word. We need to hear from God through His Word. We need to be transformed day by day by His Word. You can have supreme confidence in this book in front of you. As we close, I want to just um, spend this time, uh, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. and Let's just thank God for His perfect provision through Jesus. Man, what a perfect provision through Jesus. Let's thank Him for making it crystal clear when you when you see the life of Jesus it's crystal clear that all these prophecies even though they were confusing at first they point directly to Jesus there was no contradiction at all God was just being more detailed to make it even more amazing this one he would send to make it even more clear to us that Jesus is the Savior let's thank him for what we have in His Word. Let's thank Him for the gift of salvation. What great love the Father has lavished upon us. Let's praise Him for it. And let's celebrate His salvation as we go by by going out there and telling everyone that we see. I've been so encouraged by you guys. Uh, David posted this week. He posted and Rebecca posted in our small group just stories of how you all have been sharing Christ with the world. Guys, that is not the case in many churches, unfortunately. Unfortunately, many churches out there, we, we've neglected this, this command to go and proclaim the gospel. I'm so thankful for you guys that you have not neglected that command. So, so thankful that each week I can get on that band at any time and I can see a story about someone sharing the good news of Christ. Praise the Lord for this church body. And praise the Lord for that. And I pray that, that, that this morning we would have even more boldness to go out and share this Christmas week. What an opportunity, right? You've already got a conversation right there forming in front of you. It's Christmas, right? It's Christmas. Go with that and what Christmas is all about. Share with them some of these prophecies maybe hundreds of years before Jesus. But let's go out and just celebrate His salvation as we go. Um, And if you don't know Him this morning, it's by repentance and faith. I've already said this, but I want to give you one last opportunity as we close. Repentance of your sin that has pierced Jesus and putting your full trust in Him as Savior, not only as Savior, but as Lord of your life. I beg you to do that this morning as we go. Um, And let's go ahead and I'm going to give you just a few minutes to pray silently and then I'll close this in prayer. Oh, Father, how thankful we are for Your Word. We thank You for how You've organized the details of Scripture, Lord, so that it could only be fulfilled in Jesus. It's so clear, Lord. They could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's one upon the hearing of my voice that doesn't know You as Savior and as Lord, that they would bow this morning. They would surrender all to You this morning in repentance of sin. And they would put their trust completely in you as Savior and as Lord. And God, I pray that we would be encouraged as we go this morning, those of us who already know Him. Lord, and that you would embolden us by your Spirit this this week to go and proclaim this sweet gospel, Lord. And Father, I pray that as we're having all the festivities of of Christmas, Lord, with, with presents and with Uh, good food and and fellowship with with those that we love, Lord. I pray that we would remember it's all about Jesus. 
I pray that our minds would be solely focused on Him and His provision. Lord, open up, open up opportunities. If we're with family this week, Lord, open up opportunities that are just so clear. Father, it's so hard with families. We struggle so much, we confess, Lord, to speak to our families about You, Lord. God, I pray that You would open up opportunities that are so obvious that we can't help but walk through the door, Lord. And that You would embolden us through Your Spirit. Lord, You would give us the words in those conversations. Father, and that we would see people in our families. We would see the chains fall off this Christmas as they come to Christ one by one, Lord. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus. We thank You for the virgin birth, which is so necessary for our salvation. We praise You for You, Lord. We praise You for Your Word. We thank you for all these things, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.